What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Eric Schmidt, former Google CEO on a pandemic. We thought things would take 10 years that have occurred in one year. Consumer patterns have changed. People are online. I don't think we're going back to the way it was a year ago. A longtime Silicon Valley exec says the coronavirus and technology have changed us for good. Look, guys. If these systems have not been in place, our lives collectively as as citizens of America would be in much, much worse shape. And COVID-19 is a long story. The virus will be with us in one form or another for the rest of our lives, hopefully under control, just like the flu. And the Republicans kick off night one of the 2020 National Convention, betting big on the economy. We'll hear from Heritage Foundation's Joel Griffith. There's no one solution to economic growth. We need to have free trade, and we need to have lower taxes, and we need to have those other incentives in place. And former Bernie Sanders advisor Stephanie Kelton. Rolling back tax cuts that weren't all that helpful in the first place don't do much harm. Plus, big changes to the Dow and Joe, Becky, and Andrew on anxiety. It's 2020. This is 2020. Everything happens in 2020. It's Tuesday, August 25th, 2020. Gang's all here. Sort of. Tune in at 6.30 for Joe Kernan's hair. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. And Andrew, congratulations, because you have for once made it to a camera before Joe has. Woo! (laughs) This is true. This is true. The the benefits of not having uh, to commute. The benefits of not having to commute. Because you, you we should explain. Joe has had some trouble. Yes, Joe actually had some car trouble on the way here. Flat tire, I think I hear. He is on the Squawk Newsline this morning. He's not in his seat at the NASDAQ. Joe, what happened? Yeah, uh, flat tire, first day back uh, with my driver. And uh, we were on 78, which leads to the New Jersey Turnpike, which is where Andrew was the other day, I think, Andrew. Weren't you on the Turnpike? We're we're going right now. We're we're getting close to (laughs) We're getting close to the Lincoln Tunnel. I had to wait and have another uh, another driver pick me up. Ooh. That worked. The only problem was we got the flat and we were uh, in the express lane, so we had to pull over in the express between the express lane and the local lane and stay on the median there with Yikes. semis whizzing by on both sides, going 80 with the back of the thing open. It was the whole car was shaking. I was like, okay, I'm never gonna. I'm not gonna. I'll never be there again. I thought I was gonna be faster. So I take it you changed the tire. You changed the uh, tire, no, Joe? No, I could have. Yourself? I, the first thing I did, first thing I did was make sure I said, "Look, he's back there, like messing around." I said, "You got to go over that median and get way over to the right. We cannot stay in the middle of the, you know, stay that, out of the way. That's yeah. just asking for problems." Anyway, and then you guys can explain to me if I got deja vu, Honeywell. I thought Honeywell already was it. No, yep. it, it was what? in. It was out. It was back in. I mean, is that the first time that's happened? I think. Weird. Joe, I'll tell you, last night, power went out here. So there was a shot that I wasn't going to be here either. We didn't get the power back until about 1230 or so. It's only, um, it's, but, it's 2020. This is 2020. Yeah, Everything yeah, happens yeah, but, in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to let you guys go, but I feel bad for Pfizer. What'd they do wrong? They're making a vaccine. You know, right they're out. Amgen's in. 
What happened to Pfizer? Yeah, Pfizer, Raytheon. As you've heard, there are major changes coming to the 124-year-old Dow Jones Industrial Average. Three new companies will be added to the 30-stock index starting Monday, August 31st. Salesforce.com is replacing ExxonMobil. Amgen will replace Pfizer. And Honeywell International will replace Raytheon Technologies. The shakeup was prompted by Apple, which currently accounts for about 12% of the value of the Dow 30, enacting a four-for-one stock split, which would significantly reduce the benchmark's exposure to the information technology sector. Here's Andrew. Some form of Exxon had been in the Dow since 1928. Now, Apple will be moving from the most heavily weighted component to the 17th most influential as a result of that split. I know a lot of investors who had bought the Dow as an index in part just, frankly, to own Apple that way. Uh, this is, this is uh, obviously now going to be changing in some respects. Based on yesterday's closing price, United Health Group will become the most heavily weighted component in the Dow. That's followed by Home Depot and now Amgen. So you have a little bit of history with the ExxonMobil piece. Pfizer, which of course has been such an influential and big name in the world of pharmaceuticals, not in the index any longer. And um, there will be lots of debate about uh, who should should have been in or or should have been out or what it means. If you were on the if you if I mean, we should we, maybe when Joe comes, we can all we can all have our debate. But uh, Becky, if you were on the, uh, the, the the panel, the committee, is this the way you would have done it? No, but uh, look, people kind of trash the Dow for years and years because of the way that they put different stocks in, the way they, you know, they come up with this market weighting, and that, that, that does create some kind of crazy sort of reasoning for what happens, why these things come in right. and out. What's amazing, though, over time is that the Dow has so closely tracked the S&P 500. So that has been something. But again, you're picking some real winners and losers here. Salesforce.com up 3.6%, Honeywell up 4%, just like Amgen. Um, and that's the type of thing, this jockeying, that that definitely is going to ruffle some feathers, particularly of those who've gotten kicked out. Joe mentioned that, uh, you know, Honeywell being out, being back in, being out. Uh, we thought that was the only one that had done that. But Peter Schack now points out that actually AT&T has had similar round trips, made several round trips, uh, but that was because of various mergers that it made Amen. over time. And of course, it, it, its exit last time around was in 2015 when it was replaced by the Dow with Apple. People complained about that at that point, so that stock had run up too much. But yep. uh, now look where it is. And uh, if it hadn't had that that stock in it, who knows where it'd be right now. It's still, as I said, down about 4% from its all-time high versus the 17 times that the S&P has set a new high this year and the, what is it, 37 times that the NASDAQ has actually set a new high. So again, the NASDAQ and then the S&P have been outperformers, but we'll see what happens with these changes as they come. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> Out of breath. Hey, Joe, I've already been hearing from people. They suggested that you were up late at the RNC last night. Uh, I missed, I missed it. I mean, I heard it started at eight. I, I, you know, the, there was a special thing. Can I tell you real quickly? If you bet on the Lakers, yeah. if you bet on the Lakers and they won every point they scored above 81, which was Kobe's best game ever, you got a dollar for every, and, and they won. And I bet on that. And, and so I was, uh, I was going to say, I'm guessing you had certain, money on that. You, you got to keep your priorities. I mean, you know, uh, I, you know what? To be fair, Understood. I didn't see any. I didn't see any of the DNC, so I, I can't watch the RNC. I, what so I'm shocked about today is is Andrew, my yeah. man, stepping out with the shirt. What happened? Look at you with your bad self. Where did that has never that has never happened in the history you sound of jealous. 
What? Maybe I'm jealous. What happened, Sork? What happened? What happened? That's unheard of. You didn't notice. It was funny. It was funny. You didn't notice. I mean, this is stupid stuff for the audience that, that, that probably just wants to know the financial it's news. Far but be it from even us yesterday, I wore a different shirt just for you. Just for you, I wore a different shirt with a different collar yesterday. And then today, I thought I'd step out and do the same. Then I found out that you had the flat tire, so I thought, oh, we won't talk about shirts today. But then, of course, you with your eagle eyes, the second you walk in, you look First at the shirt. First thing I noticed. So Proof it's a different shirt. Hey, guys, we should also tell you Google searches for anxiety soared in March as the United States locked down because of the pandemic. That's according to a new study from UC San Diego that analyzed Google Trends data from the last 16 years. Searches for the words anxiety and panic attacks were roughly 11 percent higher in the first two months of the pandemic. That's the highest that they've been in the 16-year search history. Researchers saw spikes around key news events, including a 17 percent rise on March 16th when social distancing and guidelines were first issued. Yeah, um, we're all familiar with the little, uh, 2020 is the year of, of some anxiety. In fact, I, I think I'm getting <laughs> used to it. Like this morning, I was like, you know, what am I gonna do? It's like, you know, that, yeah. Yeah, I, it, 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 you get a flat, you get, you get, although I didn't like the semis on both sides. I was like, my yeah. guy's back there, he's like, let's see, I think I got some spray I can put in. I'm like, <laughs> you know, with the back open whizzing by, that was the, uh, but you know what? I could have gone home, and I have a camera there. So I felt that's like what I, I that's was. That's why I said I thought you were I at was, home. I didn't realize it happened on the road at first. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, yeah, why yeah. didn't he just turn on the camera? Yeah. I was loaded but the with idea options. That you were already on the road, stuck in between. Yeah. I was loaded <laughs> I, with options. I thought the same thing, Joe. My, but, uh, when I was brushing my teeth to go to bed last night, the power went out, and I thought, "You've got to be kidding me!" Dead black in the house, everything all around toothbrush? us. And I thought about it for about 27 seconds, and I no, not an electric toothbrush. I didn't blow the power grid, but I, I I I thought about it for about 27 seconds, and I thought, "You know what? I'm going to bed. Hopefully, it'll be on. Nothing I can do about it at this exactly. moment." So exactly. it worked. 12:30 was know, back serenity on. Everything's now. good. Serenity now. The 2020 Republican National Convention kicked off last night, and like the Democrats last week, this gathering is unconventional. Social distancing requires smaller in-person groups, and the first night's lineup of speeches were delivered primarily to camera from the Mellon Auditorium in Washington, D.C. Emphasis was on the economy. Here's Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the U.N. Joe Biden and the socialist left would be a disaster for our economy. But President Trump is leading a new era of opportunity. Before communist China gave us the coronavirus, we were breaking economic records left and right. The pandemic has set us back, but not for long. President Trump brought our economy back before, and he will bring it back again. For a look at what uh, could impact business and the markets, I uh, want to welcome Stephanie uh, Kelton, Sunny Sasa. Uh, SUNY Stony Brook, uh, professor of economics and public policy, uh, author of The Deficit Myths. She served as a member of the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force on the Economy that delivered policy recommendations to the Biden campaign last month. Also joining us is Joel Griffith, research fellow with the Heritage Foundation. Stephanie and Joel, thank you both uh, for joining us. Um, you know, let, let's talk a little bit, Joel, about what you think would happen in a, uh, in a second Trump administration. What changes? Um, how do you think the the uh, the economy works in in, in that uh, version of the world uh, versus a Bi versus a Biden version of the world? Well, I think it's a very stark contrast between the two. And uh, 
former Vice President Biden has been very clear about what he intends to do, and that includes rolling back much of the tax reductions on businesses that have spurred an increase in capital investment, and that longer term will increase productivity, which will increase the standard of living Joel, for Joel, every city. Joel, can I ask, Joel, can I ask you a serious question? Because I yes, hear sir. people uh, say this on TV all the time, and it makes no sense to me because it's not true. Um, there was a, a small increase in CapEx uh, when uh, the Trump administration came into office. Uh, maybe you could argue it was the, the initial results of the tax cuts. But as you know, and you can go look at the math, you can go on the, the St. Louis Fed site that shows CapEx. CapEx went down. CapEx went down during this period. Why, 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 why do you come on and say that it went up? Well, it, it, following the taxes, after those were enacted, we actually did see, as you just referenced, we saw an increase in capital expenditures uh, in, in that investment component. Now, we had a few other developments in here. We also saw uh, a lot of trade friction. Uh, much of that was needless. Um, there's, there's no one solution to economic growth. We need to have free trade, and we need to have lower taxes, and we need to have those other incentives in place. So, yes, we saw the initial increase in CapEx, um, which does have a long-term increase on productivity. At the same time, we took a few steps backwards on trade. So in the next administration, if that is President Trump, we need to see a continuation of the tax policies that began to set us on a better long-term footing. At the same time, we need to see increased business certainty. Our businesses need to know, and our investors here at home and abroad need to know, that we are open for trade and that we are going to try to expand free trade across the globe. Now, uh, Vice President Biden, on the other hand, he has talked about his energy plan, which is pretty much a Green New Deal light. We know that that will have an impact on average families. We know that the Green New Deal cost would be $7,000 per year. That would make us looking a lot more like parts of Europe, which have far less disposable income per family because energy costs are so much higher. Right. Stephanie, let, Stephanie, let me let me come to you on this with the tax issue, which is that Biden and, and Biden said it in our interview right here on Squawk Box a couple months ago, said, even if we're in the midst effectively of the pandemic, because I, I pushed him on this, would you raise taxes? Meaning if you're trying to create a recovery, would you raise taxes in the midst of it? And his answer was yes. Do you think that's right? Uh, look, I think that I probably have a, a pretty different opinion. Um, for me right now, I think I would be looking more for something analogous to what Chairman Powell has told us uh, that he is going to do with respect to monetary policy. When, when Chairman Powell said we're not even thinking about thinking about raising interest rates, you know, the sort of fiscal analog to that would be we're not even thinking about thinking about raising taxes, uh, as you say, in the midst of a pandemic. But I got to say, you know, the, the compulsion to increase taxes is really driven by um, concerns about doing anything that adds to the deficit. And I think that's what happens. Politicians want to try to pay for their program. Democrats seem to want to hold themselves to a different and they think higher standard than their Republican counterparts in the sense that, you know, they want to try to show that they can accomplish their agenda without adding to the deficit. And I think that's what gets behind a lot of this sort of stuff. So, no, I have a, a different opinion, but I understand, I think, the politics that drive uh, Vice President Biden to say, listen, we, we can uh, afford to do the kinds of things that I'm talking about the agenda but that if I'm he does, pushing. But, but and, Stephanie, you know. Stephanie, if he were to raise taxes in the middle of all of this, do you ultimately believe that would be bad for the economy? 
Well, it depends what those tax increases are. I mean, you sort of just said the tax cuts didn't lead to the economic miracle. They didn't produce the windfall that led to lots of job creation and CapEx and all that sort of thing. So if that's true, and it is, then it seems to me that rolling back tax cuts that weren't all that helpful in the first place don't do much harm. So that's my answer. Okay. Uh, We want to thank you uh, both for being with us. Next on Squawk Pod, former Google CEO Eric Schmidt says when it comes to big tech, bigger isn't so bad. I want to be the first person on your show to say I want to start by thanking Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook and so forth for making it possible for us to get through a pandemic better than in 1918. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today on the podcast, Eric Schmidt, a longtime Google executive. He was CEO of the company for a decade, from 2001 to 2011. And in that time, Google became Google, moved from the groundbreaking search engine slash verb into the giant trillion-dollar company we know today as Alphabet. Schmidt remained executive chairman until 2018, and since then has built Schmidt Futures, promoting the use of technology to solve problems ranging from education challenges to the health of the world's oceans. Recently, he has advised New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on reimagining New York State after the coronavirus pandemic. And today, Eric Schmidt launches his podcast, Reimagine, about all society after COVID-19. How can we build a brighter future after this global crisis? Here's what it sounds like. I'm very much convinced young people will be the solution to this problem. If we can identify the truly great human leaders of the future, the smartest, the most empathetic, the quickest, the best writers, the best thinkers, and develop them, especially in countries where they typically don't have access to systems, that we can make a huge difference. In other words, the way you solve these these problems was with more capable people in the right places. The way you solve the governance problems is you have people there who know how to lead and ultimately hope We hope that this will contribute to the leadership and quality of the world. We spoke to Schmidt today about leadership, about the health crisis, and the huge, mind-boggling size of a handful of American tech companies. The S&P 500 and NASDAQ have posted four consecutive weeks of gains, driven in part by mega-cap companies Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google parent Alphabet, all now valued north of $1 trillion. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Good morning to you. Thanks for uh, joining us, Eric. Great to see you. Good morning. Um, Great to be. I do want to start with the. I do want to start with the mega cap tech issue because I think there's so many questions embedded in what's happening and the acceleration of their success and and whether that's a sustainable success and frankly what it means to the rest of the economy. Uh, are you a believer when you look at the valuations that are now ascribed to these companies and the success they've had? that this is sustainable? And what does that look like and what does that mean elsewhere as a result? Well, it's broadly sustainable because what was true, we thought things would take 10 years that have occurred in one year. 
uh, consumer patterns have cha are changed, people are online. I don't think we're going back to the way it was a year ago. And the companies that you're naming are clearly among the winners of this digital acceleration. Uh, clearly, uh, having and these companies be American firms uh, controlled by the U.S. and so forth is incredibly important for U.S. Uh, dominance. I want to get into the issue of China and where we are with them and maybe TikTok and, else, and some of the other issues. But let me just ask you about size and scale. And it's an issue you grappled with, obviously, uh, when you were running Google and now Alphabet, of course, which is, is there a point at which these companies become too big? There's obviously a, a big debate about this going on in Washington. Uh, Epic Games has now gone after Apple for uh, its control of the App Store, which is now in court. Um, do you think that that all gets upended and end? How does that work into this larger conversation about China and being global? I want to be the first person on your show to say I want to start by thanking Amazon and Apple and Google and Facebook and so forth for making it possible for us to get through a pandemic better than in 1918. Can we just start by saying, look, guys, if these systems have not been in place, our lives collectively as, as citizens of America would be in much, much worse shape. So, yes, there's lots of issues, and there always are, and as these companies get bigger, there are going to be uh, areas where there's conflict. But at the fundamental point, they're now driving, not only are they driving our um, stock market, but they're driving the global presence of America in the world. It's incredibly important that these companies be successful. Eric, you know, you look at the success of these companies, but one of the questions is the competition one. And the, and the reason I ask it is, interestingly, you go back 20 years ago, most of these companies were not in the top 10 in terms of valuations in America. In fact, it was a com almost a completely different list. I think Microsoft was the only company on that list. So a lot's changed. That means there's been a lot of competition over the last 20 years. I think the and real question, the way, though, from a competitive standpoint is, you look out, if we had this conversation in 2040, do you think that the names on that list of the top 10 most highly valued companies will be different again? Because then you'd say, yes, there is competition. If they're still on the list, there may be questions about it. Well, first place, there's brutal competition. Among other things, there's brutal competition among the five. 20 years ago, the one really big player was Microsoft. But Microsoft has now been joined by four other very, very large companies, each of which is run cleverly but in a different way. They have different ways in which they win and they lose. We benefit from that brutal competition. Look at what you have in a mobile phone, the competition between Android and iOS and Apple phones and the, the Android ecosystem has brought a supercomputer into your pocket. That's going to continue. The reason it'll be different in 20 years is because artificial intelligence will create a whole bunch of new platform winners. And remember that the way this works is the U.S. establishes global platforms that everyone else uses. We are forgetting that it is U.S. leadership at the platform level, whether it's Google or Apple or what have you, that has brought us to this point where we have multi-trillion dollar corporations that are leading the market. I want to get into China in just one more second, but, but let me ask you, as a former board member many, many years ago of Apple, right. what do you make of the Epic Games lawsuit against that company and the idea of, of these different stores uh, being monopolistic? So I, I don't know enough about the dispute. I, was, I left the board a decade ago. The important thing about the app stores is that they provide some level of security branding and protection for the user. In China, for example, uh, Google does not have a single app store because of regulatory issues. And there's always been issues of, is the app that you're using certified and so forth? I would be careful about breaking up the app store model as it does provide some security and protection. We can quibble about how they're managed, but the important thing is 
when you use an app store, you can rely that what's on it is represented to be what it really is. Just think of all those viruses that you are not getting as a result of the app store. Right. Um, in terms of China, uh, you saw TikTok just filed a, a lawsuit against the U.S. government. Um, the, the administration has said that they have till September 15th uh, to, for that to become an American company. Otherwise, they're going to shut it down. Do you agree with that position from a security perspective, uh, national security perspective? Um, I don't know what the, the uh, confidential security concerns are about TikTok. Uh, the claimed reason for this action is data sovereignty. In other words, uh, that the people would like to have the data for TikTok to be held in the United States. If that is the goal, there is a much simpler way to do it, which is to require TikTok and other companies like it to work with a cloud provider, Amazon, Google, or um, Microsoft, as an example, who have the necessary security protections and are covered by US law. What I worry about is that the US taking a data sovereignty position, which is what this effectively is, sets the precedent that this will now be done against American firms that have global presence. Essentially, every American tech firm has data that's stored in the US that's, stored, that's subject to US law that's used by Europeans, for example, and they bristle at that. So now you're setting the precedent that they can insist on this too. Be very careful about the multi-move scenario, the, 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 the back and forth in these things. It seems appealing, but then it sets in motion a whole bunch of things that can affect American dominance. So Eric, what's the right answer in this regard? I mean, you and I have talked about Huawei for a long time. You've also talked about the worry. I think you might even come up with the phrase splinternet, which is this idea that the internet is gonna be split as a result of all this. How, how, do you do, how do you remain secure on one side um, and at the same time not create a splinter net? We have benefited enormously by American values and American technology being used globally. I worry again, sorry we have all these worries, that what we're doing is we're splintering the Internet, as you said, because it's so easy for a country to say we don't like these other people. But we, we are safer as a world because we're using each other's applications and we're getting to understand each other better. You have to make accommodations for national security. Um, in Huawei's case, there was some evidence that Huawei was busy doing things that are inappropriate. There are no, a number of ways of stopping that and detecting it, but the best solution to Huawei is to have a strong competitor in the United States. And that strong competitor, right, should be able to wipe them out competitively. So again, we're, we're playing with TikTok and with in Huawei from a behind position. I'd rather have strategies which are where I'm quite sure the U.S. will win. We can win these battles with focus, great innovation, all the things that we do so well, and open, uh, open borders and lots of people using it outside the country. Hey, Eric, just wanted to come back to a point that you were making about being concerned about American dominance continuing, especially when it comes to these technology companies. I know a lot of people worry that if we change things too much, that we would lose our, our, our dominance in this area. I just wonder, who do you think would take over? Are these companies in China you think would, would step forward? Do you think it's companies in Europe? Where, where do you think the biggest competitive threat lies? The, the evidence is that China is as hot or hotter as Silicon Valley and the corporations of America. There's every reason to think that the Chinese have not only copied, but in some cases stolen technology from American firms, and they're busy implementing them more quickly and at scale. If you look at, for example, electronic commerce in China, it's far more advanced than we see in Europe and in the United States. So I think China is the one to watch. It's probably not the case that China will be allowed to have globally dominant platforms. There's too much concern about China and the national security, as everyone knows. 
So the consequence of China doing so well will be a further splintering, if you will, of the structure of these platforms. When they are splintered, right, when China has its own microprocessors, because we won't sell them to uh, allow them to use ours, et cetera, et cetera, we won't put it back together. And then that divergence can ultimately result in a lack of security and great tension. We benefit from the fact that everyone uses the same architectures that were invented by Americans 50 years ago on the internet. Imagine if the Chinese had invented the internet and all the weird stuff that they would have put in it um, that we would not like. So we really benefited from American ingenuity and I'm proud to, proud to say that I want that to continue. So that's an argument for continuing to sell Huawei microprocessors just to make sure that we still control basically you know, the structure and the architecture of everything? I am in favor of competition. And I am in particular in, in favor with Huawei of actually figuring out if they're doing anything bad and using redundancy and other ways to block what they're doing. There are technical ways of building systems from that are, that are un, unreliable to make them reliable. I think it's important that the simple answer, block and stop and have the property that they caused your competitor to become separate and you'll never get them back. Imagine a situation where 40% of the internet is dominated by Huawei technology and it's completely incompatible with ours. What would that do? This again, might occur, might not. Imagine what would happen if American firms no longer have access to 40% of the market. If you look, for example, at the application block, which is today occurring, how will Chinese firms be able to sell uh, apps that people want from America in their market? They'll have to have their own. You're, you're creating competitors unnecessarily. Hey, Eric, I uh, wanted to also pivot the conversation, talk a little bit about uh, the work that you've been doing uh, with, the, with the governor of New York. Uh, you might have seen Jerry Seinfeld had, a, a, had an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday uh, saying that uh, New York is not dead. Uh, however, there are lots of people that are concerned about the state of New York and cities uh, across uh, the country, about people leaving these, the, these cities, about the tax base in these cities. Um, about what happens, about the safety and security of these cities. What are you seeing and what are you, what are you thinking about right now? We, we've, uh, the governor has done a good job in New York in this general area. We've got to get the pandemic under control. We've got to get the r naught below one. We're not doing it quickly enough. I do not understand why the American government collectively has not been able to get this under control. Pretty much every other demo democratic system has been able to do so. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Without getting it under control, people are not willing to go back to work. They're not willing to risk their personal safety. They're not willing to send their kids to school. And the teachers are not willing to teach and so forth and so on. So that's got to be the highest priority. Once that's in place, I think the systems will come back fairly quickly. People miss being each other. Uh, a Zoom world is an okay transition, but people like to be together. They like to work together. I don't think everyone will work from home all the time. I think, in fact, we will return. It will take a few years. New York has been through many such scenarios, and New York will return as well. One of the things, though, uh, that I think does have people concerned is what happens to the, the, the tax base. Um, there is this security issue uh, that, and safety issue that people uh, are concerned about right now in the city. Um, are, they, are these things you talk to the governor about? And, and what can be done between now and a vaccine or, or a therapeutic? Um, there's still not enough testing, even even. In, in New York. I mean, I think there was an idea back in March when this first happened that come by the fall, we were going to, you know, people were going to be doing surveillance testing and whether you were symptomatic or not all the time. And that's how you get people back to school and get people back to work. And yet, even in states that, that, that by the way, I, I think we, we made some early, early mistakes, but hopefully have gotten a lot better. 
um, still don't have all the testing in place to give people that confidence. There are plenty of states that don't have mask rules that are effective. That's idiotic. That's unsafe. And it's leading to people's deaths. That needs to get addressed. Part of the reason the Northeast rate has been so low has been because people went through a really traumatic experience in March and April, and they all understand. In New York, people are wearing masks, and they should continue. Uh, the real failure here is that we did a multi-trillion dollar bailout in March, April, May, and yet those, in those trillions of dollars, we did not put in place the necessary structures to do rapid testing. There's plenty of technology that allows for rapid testing, and with rapid testing, corporations could open, people could go to work. Uh, the the, the uh, test specificity and accuracy of these um, testing systems is quite good now. However, they're not broadly available still. That's a tragedy. If it were the case that we had reasonably uniform mask-wearing rules and we had rapid testing, we could get back to work. Would you still invest in testing right now? You talk to a lot of venture capitalists. They say, look, if we, if we spend the money now, it's possible that if there is a vaccine come three or four months from now, it might have actually been a bad investment to invest in testing. Uh, though there's others who say, look, we're going to be dealing with this for many, many years. Continue to invest in the testing. We're going to be needing to do surveillance testing a year from now, even with a vaccine. The virus will be with us in one form or another for the rest of our lives, hopefully under control, just like the flu. We will need forms of testing to make sure we keep it under control. The investment in such a thing is not only patriotic and, and good for humanity and a good moral thing to do, but it's going to be a very good business. Trust me, if you could bring out a reasonably accurate testing system or a reasonably good antiviral right now, you become a very, very wealthy person. Um, Eric, we should also mention you have a new podcast out. You're turning the tables. Usually you answer the questions. Now you're asking them. Uh, the podcast is called Reimagine with Eric Schmidt, and we should tell people that it is live this morning what led you to do this? I got so upset over America's failure to deal with COVID, and in particular, the collective failure of our society to deal with a genuine war scenario. This is a, this is a real enemy. It's an enemy of all humans. We could have done better. So let's fix that now. I start with the UN Secretary General, and I go, go up from there. So is this... Is this um is this what they call a limited series or is this going to be, uh, uh, you know, Squawk's been on the air, I think, for 25 years now, more than 25 years. Uh, are we going to be listening to Eric Schmidt, uh, the podcast host, for a very long time? As you know, the media landscape is brutal and I hope to do well. Uh, Eric Schmidt, thanks so much uh, for joining us this morning. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
That's the show for today. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Hopefully, Joe will be there on time. I'm going to have a smooth trip in tomorrow. I can feel it. But I'll be back here tomorrow. You two will be. Cross your fingers. I, I think, oh, fingers crossed. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating or review. That helps others find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.